Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we have with us Samuel Staley. He's the author of The Beatles and Economics. We'll be calling him Sam from here on out, but Ed, how's it going? It's great. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I just finished Sam's book about two hours ago and have been marinating in my notes since then. That's awesome. Well, let me read his biography. Sam Staley is director of the DeVoe L. Moore Center in the College of Social Sciences and Public Policy at Florida State University, where he teaches economics and social entrepreneurship. Prior to that, he was a fellow at the Reason Foundation. We're big fans of Reason. While at Reason Foundation, he managed the China Mobility Project, traveling to China more than 30 times as supervisor of academic research projects on transportation policy and finance. He has more than 25 years of experience in urban policy and is the author, co-author, or editor of 13 books on public policy and more than 100 professional articles and reports. Sam, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity. Uh, it's great to talk to you. You know, I heard you on Act in Line back in September when you had this discussion on your book, The Beatles and Economics, Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and the Making of a Cultural Revolution, uh, which was published in 2020. And I'm not a Beatles fan, Sam, but I was glued to that. It was absolutely fascinating. I love how you brought the lens of economics to study, to analyzing the Beatles. But before we dive into the book, let me just ask you this, because you bring this up in the preface, and I just love this. Does the world really need another book about the Beatles? <laughs> well, apparently it does, because I wrote it. Um, <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, that, that's, a, you know, that's the thing is that I was remember when I was uh, thinking about actually this whole thing was sparked when I was, I stumbled, literally stumbled across the Beatles channels on Sirius XM radio on my way on a seven hour trip in my car. And then it happened to be the 50th anniversary of the Sgt. Pepper album release, which was a threshold album for pop music. And it's sort of, and I'm thinking, okay, the Beatles, I, I remember all these. I had the album uh, back in the day when you had a, a turntable and you would stack your albums and then they would just sort of, you know, flop down at that time. And I had my requisite number um, that would just go through that. And then I began thinking, no one's really explained this phenomenon adequately. Um, I really suddenly realized with the Sgt. Pepper album, this was so far out of the realm of not only standard and convention, but even pushing beyond that, that I, the, all the conventional explanations just, just didn't seem to get it. And so that was really what spurred my inquiry. Started off actually first with writing a commentary on Sergeant Pepper. Then it went into a conference paper that I put together. And then I said, you know what, there's, there's a book here. And I couldn't find anyone else who'd really talked about this phenomenon from the lens that I was beginning to look at. 
And that's really what spurred it because um, I guess there was another book. I just didn't, I didn't realize it, didn't think about it until I realized no one, it's not just the, it's not just John and Paul getting together and being really good songwriters and getting in the studio. There's something much more going on here. And so that's what drove me to, and it spent two and a half years researching it, uh, listening to a lot of tapes, a lot of interviews, reading a lot of stuff um, uh, to try and figure it out and connect the dots. But I think I did it. Um, oh, I think you did. And what's more amazing is you did it in less than 100 pages. Yeah. I, I, I'm older. <laughs> if, I, if, I was, if I was 30 writing the book, it would have been 500 pages. But you know, right. now that I've, I've had a few years under my belt, I kind of try to get to the point faster. Faster. And uh, yeah. You, you know, you point out that they weren't naturally gifted musicians. They, they weren't pop idols. They lacked a formal education. They couldn't, couldn't read music. They were born in the silent generation, which is ironic in and of itself. Um, but your first chapter in the book takes on the question, were they a black swan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, black swan is uh, the most thing, important thing about a black swan is that it's unpredictable. You couldn't forecast it and it, and it happens and it has this massive impact on the economy one way or the other. I mean, so, you could argue that COVID-19 was a black swan in a number of different ways because we couldn't really predict it. However, I, as I got into this, I began to think, no, they really weren't a black swan. They were essentially, one way to look at it is they're in Liverpool. At the time that the Beatles were coming together, there are about 300 bands in this really niche area of rock and roll. And they were one of the ones that emerged out of that. And there were several other very successful bands. So I think there were a lot of things going on that could allow you to predict what was going to happen. It would, it's very much an entrepreneurial story. It's not really about a random event. It's not as if aliens landed in planet pop music and then everything happened. There's a logic to it. There's, there's a way to which the Beatles in particular, but other people in their professional lives as well as personal lives, saw opportunity and tried to leverage that opportunity and in leveraging that opportunity, elevated the Beatles, not just as for mates from Liverpool, to allow them to coalesce as a band that would also then capture the creative energy that was pulled together by all four members. I think we missed that. It's a team effort. And so I don't think it really is a black swan. I think it's actually, if we just use the right lens, we can actually see there were some basic things going on. I think my book tries to pull some of that apart and explain you, why. You know, you also point out that Liverpool, which is not well known, I don't think, it, it was bombed 80 times by the Germans, the second most bombed city after uh, London. Um, and But most of the music at that time was centered in London. How do you think that region influenced them? Oh, it was huge. In fact, I think if there's one thing that my book does, I mean, there are a couple of things that I think it does that are different, but I, I really want to recenter Beatles history and pop music's history in Liverpool, because this is not the type of thing you just take four um, young men out of Liverpool and put them in Hamburg, and then they become the Beatles. They had to go through that Liverpool experience, and they had to emerge in that very uh, a, sort of a tumultuous environment in it to really find their, their own vision for what they wanted music to be. 
Hamburg was very important because it really elevated them to a professional level and gave them a tightness on stage. They were a performance band more than anything else. But I really don't think you could, Liverpool was crucial to this. And all of that, not having access to wealth, being outside the mainstream so they couldn't be shaped by the existing industry, and then also developing a following from the ground up. Uh, which really allowed them to support, uh, really just to scale um, at that point, because otherwise they would have gone to London and they and the the powers that be at the time would have just made them into another big band, swing band or something like that. Um, that's a little flippant, but um, I, so I think Liverpool was really important, and uh, and it was the backwater of music. Um, no yeah. one thought that there was anything of value in Liverpool, and you see that in the culture at the time, is, and also the way the bands would tour and who were on the playbills uh, going through northern England. Very popular among teenagers, very, but it was not popular among the elite, and which was still very much in a very different, different place. And in fact, their label that they ended up in London uh, was run by George Martin, who's now a very famous producer, but he was known for comedy. He was not known... For pop music, he and but George Martin had a classical education um, in and as a classical musician, he was thinking way outside the box, and he could begin to see what the Beatles were bringing that no one else, literally no one else, saw but George Martin. They were kind of thrilled with that, though, right? Because didn't Martin publish something to do with Peter Sellers, if I remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They're big fans of Peter Sellers, Sellers, so they were thrilled that they were going to be on the label that that produced the Peter Sellers comedy um, albums. There's a comic genius, that guy. Um, you mentioned the Hamburg residencies, and, and that was interesting, too, because you said it was there that they made really significant investments in their human capital and kind of figured out their specialization and division of labor. Explain those. They, they traveled there and they would play there for several months at a time, right? And live there. Yeah, so the residencies were typically several months um, in a row and it was consistent. But what they also did is they played a lot. They would have four, five, six hour gigs. And there were a couple of things that happened. One is they got better on their instruments. Two, they got tighter as a band. They began to really understand how each of the other band members worked. The others, they were able to experiment with, uh, with, with the, the people in the band. This is where Pete Best was dropped as a drummer. And then Ringo Starr, who was already very well established in a band, uh, chose to leave the more established band and join the Beatles. And there's this famous, uh, actually, it's, I think George Harrison and Paul McCartney have talked about this. And, and it's the story, the details get a little bit mixed up. But uh, the core of it is, um, and I'll just use Paul McCartney, uh, looked at John when they heard Ringo the first time and they both nodded to each other. This is the, this is the drummer. Because they, he was completely in sync. And frankly, it really opened my eyes to the role Ringo played in the band and how important he was to their success. And again, so each one had a role um, in this that was very important and it evolved over the 10 years they were together. Wow. And I got to ask you this, Sam, before we break, we've only got about a couple minutes, but why did so many record labels turn these guys down? I remember reading Decca. Didn't they turn them, turn them down twice? They said something like, well, oh, bands with yeah. guitars, are on, uh, they're on their way out or something. Yeah. Rock and roll's a fad. 
I mean, it was just, it was going to be a flash in the pan. That was just sort of the way they looked at it. All these teenagers couldn't sustain uh, a real uh, genre shift in music. And they were really captured. The industry was captured in very traditional ways of thinking about music and pop music and what it was. And uh, there were just very few people who could see a vision beyond that. So again, it's um, that entrepreneurial spirit and then the investments that people make early on, the venture capitalists, the the people that can see something that others can't, that discovery of new opportunity. And uh, that's what makes capitalism work. That's what makes markets work. And this would not have happened if it had been, if they had been brought up as the, the newest boy band in the industry. Um, it, it just simply, the Beatles would not have existed in and in a creativity never would have shown either. Right, right. Yeah, there's so many stories like that throughout history, right? The publishers turning down George Orwell's Animal Farm and J.K. Rowling and all that. Yep. Well, Sam, this is great. Unfortunately, we're up against our first break. Folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes. And check out our new sponsor, File. They do expense reporting, so check them out at FYLEHQ.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
And our guest today on The Soul of Enterprise is Sam Staley. His book is The Beatles and Economics, Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and the Making of a Cultural Revolution. Sam, wanted to pick up where Ron left off. And I'm quoting from your book here. You say, in economics jargon, they, meaning the Beatles, formed a firm or an organization with a dedicated mission of producing a service for public consumption, in this case, rock and roll music. Explain that. Yeah, I think this is actually something that a lot of people miss. And I think part of it is that so many of the fans of the Beatles tend to focus on one of the individual members. Or uh, like, yeah, I have friends who are George Harrison fans. I have friends uh, that really enjoy Ringo Starr because of his personality. And then you have people that talk about Paul and, and John as songwriters. What I began to realize is I was really digging into the dynamics because I was really trying to get into the black box of the Beatles. That's what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to, trying to something was going on here I, and what was going on is that they really operated like a firm, like a company. They formed the Beatles. The Beatles was a, a holistic entity and their whole goal was to produce pop music and it was an artistic venture and they never lost that. And I think um, Peter Jackson's, documentaries, I think, which is going to come out, at, is going to drop at Thanksgiving in 2021, is I think going to show a lot of this in later video. And what's interesting is that each of the Beatles had a role, but what happened was when they got into the studio, they worked together. In other words, you would have John writing a song. He would bring it in. Then the rest of the band would say, well, Maybe it works, maybe it wasn't. Um, and then they, the band would finish it. In other words, it wouldn't be something that would be in, introduced, whole, completely finished, and then they just record it. It was actually something that became this collaborative enterprise that required all four of them to be engaged. And I think this is what's missing when people understand, try to understand the Beatles. And part of that, because you know, it was just easy for the media to talk about personality conflicts, but it really becomes very clear that John and Paul and George and Ringo were very open to creative um, directions in their music. And it wasn't that, I, I think people talk about how Paul and John just sort of had this, they, they just wanted to keep all the music to themselves, but it really wasn't that way. What would happen is, and it's certainly we can see this in George Harrison's development within the band, they were always open to other songs, and they were. But the question was, is it new? Are you adding something? They, if it just sounded like Chuck Berry or Elvis Presley or Buddy Holly or Little Richard, they weren't interested. The question is, what are we adding that's going to be new to this? And the other was, does it sound good? And of course, that's the artistic part. Who know? And there's no objective way of saying of knowing whether something sounds good. But the four of them would experiment. And as they got into the studio, this became more and more obvious. Um, they would have 20 and 30 takes on, and with different versions of the song as they were experimenting and trying to figure out what's the one that's going to make the most sense. So this happens in a firm. This happens in my organization, the Duval Moore Center, in the sense that we bring people with different talents and insights together in order to produce a product and a ser or a service, in our case, because we're thinking. And... And then everyone has those roles, but we also try to be open to how those different perspectives and that diversity of opinion and thought can actually create something bigger and better or more effective. 
So I think that's a, that's a key part of it is that if we start looking at the Beatles as a firm or an enterprise, a lot more stuff begins to make sense. If we continue to look at them as individuals that were pulled into a studio, then it doesn't make sense. It just it actually, it doesn't, it's not a very satisfying explanation for what was going on. It also explains why they broke up um, as well in a very elegant and I think logical and consistent way as well. So any business, once it, it gets beyond its useful economic life or artistic life, um, it, it goes away. Yeah, and and we'll get we'll get there because uh, I want I definitely want to ex- explore that. But what I'd like to talk about is the role of Brian Epstein in all this. Um, you you say quote he was more than a manager; he was also a venture capitalist. What yes. do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, well, if we think about what a venture capitalist does, what does a venture capitalist do? And I think it's interesting because it, you know, the rule of thumb is basically that among any, for any venture capitalist, they expect 80 to and sometimes 90% of their investments not to bear fruit. Um, they're actually investing in something they, they think is going to be very valuable. It can be produced something that can be monetized in the market, but most of the time it doesn't work out. Um, 20%, maybe 15% of the time it does. And of course, there's outstanding successes that keeps the venture capital fund afloat. Well, Brian Epstein was very much in that boat. He, uh, was existing in the industry in Liverpool. He had some wealth and some means in which he could not only devote his own labor to cultivate the Beatles, but he could also put some money behind it. And there was, it wasn't clear that the Beatles themselves were going to be successful. They were just a very good liver, liver, Liverpudlian band um, in this weird um, kind of offshoot of rock and roll called Skiffle, which was only known in Northern England. But he could see that there was something bigger and better there, that there's something that could go and could scale and get to the point it could be monetized on a much larger level. And so really beginning with the second residency in Hamburg, that's when Brian Epstein really became influential. He began to really help shape the band into something that could be more acceptable on a, to a broader audience. And he, so that's when they started wearing, uh, they started wearing their, uniforms and their suits and they tried to create an image that could go with the band itself and they moved off of the black leather and into um, something that could be more acceptable um, to the middle class and wherever that might be but they didn't he realized enough that he didn't want to shape the music the music was what was propelled that was the value that was being created and so he could see that but it was a risk um, there was clearly a lot of risk a lot of uncertainty because coming out of Liverpool nobody thought anything a value in music can come out of Liverpool. And so, but he nurtured that. And then he was with them until he died um, in the late, in the, well, middle, late 60s. And, uh, and they, the Beatles relied on him. They trusted him. And he trusted them. And so it was a very, a very close relationship between a venture capitalist and someone who was more mature, more experienced, but had good instincts about the industry and about talent and about art. And then to the Beatles' credit, they recognized that in Brian Epstein. And George Martin did as well. They're, I was going to say there, so talk a little bit about George Martin, too, because I think he's the other person who has this, you know, not a member of the Beatles, but uh, per se, but uh, certainly someone who was part of the firm. Yeah, definitely part of the firm. And it's, it was interesting. There's this ongoing debate. Was there ever a fifth Beatle? And some people say Billy Preston because he's the only musician who's gotten credit on an on a song that wasn't a beetle 
Um, but I think the other more credible argument, if you're going to make it, would be George Martin. Because George Martin brought in classical music and Baroque elements into pop music at a time that never nobody thought would, would work, yet it did work. He brought his classical music sensibility into thinking about layering their music in order to really create something new and different. But I've got a quote in the book, which I think is very telling. It comes from his, his book called All You Need Is Ears, which is a fantastic book. It needs to go back into print. It is just not because of the Beatles, because of the way he thinks about music and his role as a producer. But even he says, look, I was very helpful in giving them some structure, helping them navigate and construct songs so that they would be more enduring. And he could he had an ear for knowing what was going to be their hit. What was the music that was going to really break out? But he also listened to the Beatles. But he there's a point, and it really is about 1963, 1964. 1965, when George Martin says, he acknowledges in the book that the Beatles had moved beyond him in the sense that he could be adding elements, but it was right now, the Beatles were now propelling all that art. And he never thought of himself as a co-writer. He always thought of himself as a producer. So, and he was huge. I mean, there are definitely, it's hard to see how the Beatles would have been able to con create the momentum they did to challenge music at the level they did without George Martin being there. I think it might have gotten there um, because they were, they, once they went into the studio, that's when things blew up in a good way. And I think they would have eventually gone into the studio, but George Martin was there to really help shape it. And then some very talented um, sound engineers that were just incredibly entrepreneurial in their own right that basically never backed down from a challenge. And they said, oh, no one's ever done that. Well, let's figure out how to do it. And, and it was all keyed into the art. All of it was keyed into the art. So George Martin was huge. And um, again, taking the risk at Parlophone Records after they've been rejected by everyone else in London. I'm not exaggerating. That's literal. And seeing the potential, but also recognizing his role was to shape, not to actually drive the music. And then knowing when to back out, when back and say, okay, this is, I'm no longer, if I continue to be involved, I'm actually changing the music. But what made the Beatles successful was the Beatles. It wasn't George Martin. And so very, very smart and, uh, person, very, uh, just incredibly respectful, just an amazing resource. We have about two minutes to, till the next break, and the, there's so many places to, to go here, including you know their their use of the studio itself as a, as an an instrument that where they created that the first ever recorded uh, uh, use of feedback, uh, you know John Lennon. But the one thing I wanted to talk about, and this ties into a later chapter that I don't think we'll have time to explore today, which is the comparison to to the to the Beach Boys, but the Beach Boys effectively created one one subgenre of music, surf rock. Right. right. The, the, you can trace be the Beatles songs to the origin of what, thir three or four or five or six or seven different subgenres of rock. Yeah. And it's like, OK, that's the song that created this whole subgenre. Right. Right. No, that's it. And I think, by the way, I do think uh, the Beach Boys are underestimated um, as as well, including their influence on the Beatles. And that itself, uh, I devote some time to. But yeah, that's the that's what happened. I mean, they, they just continued to push the envelope on music. Question is, does it sound good? Or are we doing something new? 
And then the studio just opened up things in ways that no one ever thought would be possible. Wow, this is just fantastic conversation, but we have, are up against our break. Want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We mentioned the Patreon channel, uh, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can hear the show without commercial interruption, as well as our bonus episodes that we record. That Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. If you need a mind, get one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Sam Staley. He's the author of The Beatles and Economics. And Sam, you talked about three demographic and economic trends that the Beatles rode, like the post-World War II recovery and the rising number of teenagers and the increasing discretionary income that they had. And it astonished me, but after three years of touring, they were the wealthiest music artists in the world. I think you said that they were the iPod of the 1960s. I mean, they leveraged that wealth to innovate, didn't they? Absolutely. And I think, again, this is, uh, again, uh, uh, the very opening, I think I talked about the, the Sgt. Pepper album. Uh, the question, so what, what got me into this was, what led to the Sgt. Pepper album? Because it is off the charts in terms of 
of what an artist was doing or even allowed to do in the studio. And I think this is the other part of this. I think, I think frankly, that revolution could not have happened outside of a market system, um, which allowed venture capitalists to think about how are we going to create something new. Part of that, which is I've never seen anyone talk about this, is how the Beatles leveraged their wealth for art. And it wasn't just art as in going to a museum. It was commercial art. It was creating something that could be monetized in the market economy in a way that uh, actually, in this case, is completely blow, blew up the economy, uh, the you know, pop music again. So essentially what happened is it was, touring was no longer fun. They could not even hear each other. Um, Ringo talks about how he had to watch the back of John Lennon um, going up and down to the beat so he could keep the beat going because he couldn't hear anybody. They were getting death threats at this point. They're, in the South, they were burning their albums. And they're saying, why are we doing this? I mean, we're not having fun anymore. And there's actually a moment in a limo when they're saying, we're done. You know, this is, so what are we going to do? We're going to go into the studio. And, um, but they, but the thing about the studio is the amount of time that went into the studio with a blank, blank check from Parlophone and EMI Records was unheard of. And they literally, I mean, actually looked for the term, did they have a blank check? And then basically said, yeah, they had a blank check. The studio wasn't coming in to see what they were doing in the studio, do, doing in the music. They literally said, when you're done, uh, here you can take the studio time. And essentially what that is, if we think about it from an economic perspective and a sort of an investment perspective and an entrepreneurship perspective, they're taking their personal wealth and their labor and investing in the newest wave of innovation in this particular industry. And I don't think they're given enough credit for that. They didn't go home and just sort of hang out in their mansions with the Rolls Royces, which they had those, they could afford those. I mean, and Paul McCartney, they're always working on the art and they're thinking about, and they would come into the studio because it was a place for them to produce. It was something where they can produce their art collaboratively. And so they were investing that. They were essentially saying, we're going to use our influence, which is essentially our ability to monetize the value we create in the studio um, to get the studio time and access to the best musicians in England, actually probably the United Kingdom, to work on this collaboration. And that is a really major investment. I mean, any way you look at it. And so, again, it's, this, uh, it's, it's the idea. I think they spent over 700 hours um, editing and, and recording the Sgt. Pepper album. And their first album, they spent 12 hours. Um, so that's an indication of the scale and the scope of what has happened in what is really literally four years, four or five years. But they've, um, they basically leveraged their wealth and their, their success um, to create even more success. You know, what do you do when, you, when, you've, uh, when you, you've got the iPod and that's done? Well, you go to the iPhone. And then what are, what's the next thing from the iPhone? I'm not sure. I'm not, I have to talk to the people that are much more tech savvy than I am. I tell you, it's extraordinary, really, really. And uh, th their instincts were right, and their willingness to leverage their own wealth and power and authority for their art is way underestimated. I couldn't agree more, but they kept reinvesting it. They kept 
putting it at risk and pushing those frontiers. As you say, there, there are so many lessons in this book for entrepreneurs. But one thing that's kind of counterintuitive is you know, businesses are told to stay in their lane. But when these guys got into the studio, they didn't stay in their lane, did they? They were sort of disruptors. They were creating new lanes, new highways, new modes of travel. Um, and it's interesting. So part of this, you know, I, yeah, I'm not, so I'm an entrepreneur. I, I, I teach entrepreneurship. I really like a lot of work that's in the entrepreneurial management literature now, particularly um, uh, uh, Peter Klein and, and Nikolai Fossey, who I've gotten to know a little bit of work. And I'm a big fan of uh, also a more classical economist who call it, named Israel Kersner, who has this wonderful book called Competition and Entrepreneurship. Um, I really do think entrepreneurship is about discovery. It's about really trying to identify opportunities that can be exploited um, by people with new visions. It's a very disruptive way of looking at what entrepreneurs are about. So as a business person, you can decide, am I going to be a disruptor? Am I going to be an entrepreneur? Or am I just going to um, monetize the value of the products that I sell on the market? So not all business people are entrepreneurs. And um, not all small business people are entrepreneurs. Um, so I think those, there are important distinctions between the behavior and what your goals and objectives are in terms of what you're, doing in the, uh, what you're doing in this space. And this is why I think the Beatles are classified as entrepreneurs. They are not ready to just sort of sit on staying in their lane. They are fueled personally and professionally by trying to, to push the envelope. They don't want to be state of the art. They don't want to be state of the industry. They want to push the industry to new levels. And what's interesting is that this period in the 1960s, and this is something I, it took me a while to learn, but it became very clear. This was a collaborative era of the 1960s for popular music. Um, and in fact, Brian Wilson in the Beach Boys talks about how he listened to the Beatles album Revolver and saw what they were doing, the Beatles were doing, that pushed him to really um, go, uh, work on an album called Pet Sounds, which was revolutionary for its time, mm -hmm. taking them outside the surf music genre. And then the Beatles talk about how Pet Sounds inspired them for the Sgt. Pepper album and then a lot of other creative things. And, and so they're very explicit about this. They're not saying, oh, we're trying to, there's a friendly competition and that, wow, Brian Wilson did this. We got to, you know, if he's doing that, we can, maybe we need to be doing better than that. But it was also giving credit where credit was due. And so very often in London, you, you will find, you know, going out to club, they're going out to clubs all the time. And there's this time, I think it was Eric Clapton and, and George Harrison and maybe John Lennon and someone else. Uh, I think it was Keith Richards. They were at a club and they saw Jimi Hendrix. And they looked at each other and said, Jimi Hendrix, that's the next that's the next phenomenon. And they were right. So they were always learning. They were always trying to um, sort of think about what other people were doing, thinking about where they could take it to the next level. And this, by the way, this is the kind of stuff that happens a lot of times in innovation centers. You know, you get the people around the group and, you know, the whole idea between a million cups and, and other things, you're trying to get into these collaborative workspaces and you're trying to feed off the brilliance of the other people in the room to come up with something even better. So and it was very, there was a lot of trust in that environment, which allowed it to work. So they didn't um, know, they never really, Beatles never really thought Brian Wilson would sue them if they used a particular um, technique in the, and they pushed the envelope on that technique in the studio. And they never thought they would be sued either. 
Right. You know, they broke up one month before what it was that their Let It Be album was released in May of 1970. And the lesson I take away from this, I mean, I know there's the conventional Yoko Ono broke them up or whatever, but it's really hard to disrupt yourself. And these guys started to feel individually stifled by the band and they wanted to go their own way. That's hard to do for a company to disband like that and figure out that there's greener pastures elsewhere. Absolutely. And I think that's uh, an interesting story in and of itself. And, you know, and there's, I actually say this in the book um, near the conclusion where I say, look, if we had just listened to the Beatles at the time they were breaking up, we wouldn't have had all this controversy because they knew internally why they needed to break up. And it was pretty much, I mean, John was the first to, to really say I'm done. And everyone else just sort of held on because of the marketing and, and just, but um, Paul really did the most to try to bring, keep them together, but it just got too great for him. The pressure was too great for him, too, and he, he eventually is the one that officially made it known. But they all knew that they were going to, that it just couldn't work. And this is where I talk uh, in the book, I talk about the difference between starting out if you're a, a business that's just like a, a, you know, a sole proprietorship versus a partnership or an LLC versus having to go public or becoming a, a, a corporation is that it's, the band is essentially an LLC. It's a partnership. At some point, it grows to the point it can't work within that constraint, that corporate structure. And it's either going to transform itself or it's going to, go, it's going to break up. In this case, it broke up. And unfortunately, they were so tight as a band, a lot of personal, um, emotional things got wrapped up into this. And so it was really tough, and I think it was hard for them to see the bigger picture at the time. But looking, net, looking out inside from a business perspective, I think we can say, oh, yeah, no, of course, that, that would be, that, that'd be happening. I'm sure I would, the questions I would like to ask George Martin is that, were you surprised that they broke up? And I think he would say no. I think he says probably emerging and it was sort of a natural thing that was going to happen. Um, and it did. And, uh, I, but they never lost the passion for their art. And that, and the, but they needed to move out individually. And that becomes very clear in 1968, 1969. Some of their best work is on Abbey Road, their last really true professional collaborative enterprise. Um, great, um, a phenomenal work. Um, but they were all, they knew that the Beatles were done um, um, because they need to go in their own direction. Well, you know, you, I, I did not know this. They're, they're four out of 14 inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, both as solo acts and as members of a band. Yes. They're, um, it, it, that's a story in and of itself. Um, the band is obvious. But then as each individual, and I, I think one of the things that I found really important uh, and learning for me was how important Ringo was in that. And it, his, his, his addition to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, in my view, is long overdue. Yeah. Um, I think we now are appreciating it much more than before. But. That's awesome. Well, Sam, this is great. Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home, but I, I just wanted to say thank you so much for appearing. It's been an honor to be able to talk to you about this. Thoroughly enjoyed the book. And again, folks, I'm not a Beatles fan, but even if you're not, you need to read this book. You'll learn a ton. It's just a rollicking read and fits right in kind of with the theme of the show. Um, and if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Ed mentioned our patreon.com slash TSOE channel. And at a certain tier, you can get a shout out on the show like Blake Oliver did. 
check out Blake Oliver's new entity, EarmarkCPE.com, where you can actually get CPE for listening to podcasts. And now we want to hear from Ed's employer and our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're talking about the Beatles and economics with the author Sam Staley. Uh, uh, Staley uh, Sam, I wanted to ask you, the, do we have the, 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 the document, documentary that's coming out, I think, uh, on Thanksgiving, as I believe, the 25th of, of November? Um, and uh, there's a, I was watching a couple of clips from that, and I think there's going to be some, some, some interesting things there, including you can see where they're starting. There's definitely some cracks in the veneer that, that are happening. Um, Paul is introducing the song, I've Got a Feeling, to the band, and they're sitting around collaborating around it. I don't know if you've seen this clip. Yet, I'm not. And he's he's he and, and you know he's going. I got a feeling he's singing it over and over again. And and Ringo stops on the drums and goes, "Let me guess, this one's called I've Got a Feeling." <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it's just like this really deadpan moment where you see, okay, yeah, there's there's clearly some challenges there. And one of the things that you bring out in the book, which I hadn't realized, and this is of course called the Get Back Tapes. That right. you really felt impeded 
the recording of of the album that then became let it be which was the last yeah. album released but the second to last album recorded and you were talking about abbey road which was a much more pleasant experience for the the band recording that talk a little bit about that dynamic yeah yeah it's, it's an interesting dynamic because I, frankly businesses get into this get into this trap a lot and you think you want to, and the Beatles expand, they really did experiment in a lot of different ways and a lot of, and not all of it was successful. I mean, so in their traditional enterprises, they were all flopped. Um, the, the music, the, the movies, I mean, they were commercially successful. Oh, but let's face it. They're just not good movies. I mean, if you like British slapstick humor, they're fine, but we're not talking about really great movies in that sense. But so one of the things that was interesting, and this is a, this whole section about the get back, and that's why I'm really interested in seeing the movie as well, because I want to see what Peter Jackson has done. And I actually do have a lot of faith that he's going to get some things right that have not the people have not interpreted correctly by going back. Is that they tried to do something that was not the Beatles, and the recordings. So the idea was, and this was, and Paul McCartney's taking responsibility for this. We're going to create a movie. And we're, the movie is going to be about how we're going to, how we go through recording and creating art. And the problem was that immediately got them into a schedule that is a film schedule, not a music creation art schedule. And the thing is, that's not the Beatle, how the Beatles operate. It's sort of like saying, okay, we're going to, I mean, imagine if IBM uh, now owned Apple. I mean, the chances of that being successful is really, really low. And of course, we see this in corporate mergers all the time, right? Cultures don't mesh. Um, they end up spinning off um, companies. Sometimes there are companies that try to change a culture that was successful, and then they almost go out of business. And that's kind of the dynamic we see happening in these sessions, is that they're trying to get up early in the morning, um, try to force a creative process, when in fact they did their best work over longer sessions that don't fit the normal record, you know, film recording uh, boxes. And when producers come and they leave and videographers come and leave, they were much better off going in the evening and then really recording into the early morning hours and working over and over while they had those creative juices flowing. So I think there are a couple of important lessons. One was understand what is the culture and the organization that makes you successful. If you are not the type of person that gets up, if you're not a morning person, don't try to do all your creative work in the morning. Uh, if, you're, if you're an evening person, uh, if you're you know, like, I'm in bed at 9 o'clock, at 10 o'clock at night, that is the last time I need to be doing anything creative. The other part of it, so stay true to yourself in a sense and understand where that value is coming from. Um, the other part of it is that you really do need as a business to stay focused on your primary goal and objective. Um, I, I'm a, so in other words, once you stray from that, um, you need to be able to correct and get back into what your normal groove would be. And the Beatles struggled with that. And actually, you can see a lot of really discoordinated activity during those sessions and things where they really had lost their way in many ways. And I do think it's because this major recording project was trying to do something that they were not. And the creative process began to break down. And of course, we now look at the, the get back sessions and we see a lot of good art that came out of it. 
but it was a really messy process. And then it created, uh, this is the other part when we talk about teams, it also created friction among the members because they could see they knew it wasn't working and they were frustrated because they didn't know what was what to do about it. And then so the teamwork began to drop. And so there's a lot, and I think at one point Ringo Starr even said, look, there's a lot of crap that was recorded during those sessions. Now that's normal in the sense that any creative process is going to create stuff that it doesn't work. But in the particular case of this, these sessions, I think we're going to see the beginning of this breakdown of the team environment and the creative process because they were forced to be in a structure that didn't make sense for their creative process and their inclinations as team members. Well, there's a, there is a section in the, in the, in the trailer where they, someone asked John Lennon, well, how, how many do you think we have for the album? And he says, none. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've got none. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's, here's an economic question for you. It had uh, John Lennon's life not been tragically cut short. Would they have faced economic pressure to get back? Um, maybe not in the recording studio, but maybe for a concert. Yeah, no, there definitely was. Uh, and there always was. In other words, ever since they broke up, a huge amount of pressure. And again, to the Beatles, each individual Beatles credit, they resisted that. And part of this, I think here's where Paul McCartney's post-Beatles career is very, um, very helpful to understand. Paul McCartney has been extraordinary as an individual artist after the Beatles. I mean, the, what he has had more number ones than any of the others combined. Part of that, and people say, well, part of that was with Wings. Well, Paul McCartney was still the Wings. I mean, so what was different about Wings is that in the Beatles, the Beatles had four people that were collaborative, whereas Wings only had Paul. And that was by, in, by intention. So Paul, but all the Beatles really were trying to find their own voice, their own sense of where their, their personal art was in that post-Beatles um, period. And that's true for Ringo Starr, George Harrison, John Lennon. John Lennon was probably uh, further ahead on the curve than the others were. But um, Paul McCartney talks about how Band on the Run was the first album where he thought he really had his own voice. He had really pulled away from the Beatles at that point. So I think well, there was a lot of pressure. I think if, if John Lennon, and of course it's all speculation, I think if John Lennon had not been killed, uh, tragically uh, murdered, I think there would have been more collaboration of the four in the mid to late 80s. I think they would have created enough of their own identities as entrepreneurial artists that they would have felt comfortable enough to go back into a collaborative process and enough time had passed that the wounds, the emotional scars would have not healed over, but they would have, the wounds would have been healed, but still a few scars, but I think they would have been able to go back into that process. And I think that was, you know, it's unfortunate because we don't know. Um, we do know that the relationship between Paul, John, I mean, Paul, Ringo and George was much better um, in the mid and late eighties than it ever was before. I think that trajectory would have continued. Yeah. So you, your, your, your bet would have been for a, a, probably another studio album as well. That's interesting. You know, yeah. Not yeah. just a concert. Wow. This has just been so fascinating. Sam, thank you so much for being on. We hope you'll come back because we'd love to talk to you about your visits to China and social entrepreneurship. So appreciate you being on the show. Okay. Ron, what, do we got coming up, what do we got coming up next week? 
Next week, Ed, we're going to rerun one of my favorite shows, Scroogeonomics, Why You Shouldn't Buy Christmas Gifts. So that's what, that's what we're doing in, uh, for Black Friday. All right. Sounds good. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. But in the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 